Well, good morning. Looks like this side of the room is emerging from the hole we've been in quicker than this side of the room, but I'm glad you're all here and glad that you are online as well. And I just trust that God's giving you the grace for this season. You holding up okay? Yeah? Tough season, but uh, we got a good God. So um, I was thinking, I Googled something this week that, um, boy, did I get a lot of hits. I Googled the phrase, follow your heart. And if you ever want to just have your, um, your search engine flooded, Google that phrase because that is um, kind of the, the world view <laughs> that we live under in our culture and it's pretty amazing. So I, I brought a few quotes for our edification this morning. Um, and uh, it's it just in, interesting to me hear, hear people's perspectives. So here's, uh, here, well, follow your heart, but don't forget your glasses. Um, have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. That was the advice that Steve Jobs gave. Follow your instincts, that's where true wisdom manifests itself. That's what Oprah says. Um, now, I, I don't know much about Oprah. Obviously, I'm not living in a hole, I know who she is. But I don't know much about her character and life. Uh, however, I did read a good percentage of Steve Jobs' biography that came out a few years ago and I actually put it down two-thirds of the way through because it was just grieving me so much. Here's a man who's a genius to be sure, but he's genuinely cruel and so selfish. It's like I'm not sure that following his heart actually made much of a life for him, and it certainly didn't help those around him um, beyond his um, customers. Uh, Here's another one, um, maybe relevant for today. The more you trust your heart, the more empowered you become, the stronger you become, and the happier you become. Those are the words of Giselle Bundchen, the supermodel whose husband is about to start a playoff game in just a few minutes, Tom Brady. Now here's my question. Do you think Tom is gonna go into that game with his primary strategy being Um, trust your heart, you'll be empowered. And if he does, what if Matthew Stafford trusts his heart? There's a problem. Or for Tom's sake, perhaps worse, if Aaron Donald trusts his heart? Or what about Cooper Cup? I mean, he's a believer. Maybe he has a heart advantage if he trusts his heart. How does that work? Seems to me that, well, paying attention to your heart matters. There's got to be a lot more to life if it's really going to work. And I suspect the team that only trusts its heart today is going to go home very brokenhearted, right? Or how about this one? Uh, Make sure that you always follow your heart and your gut and let yourself be who you know you are. There's like a big theme in our in our culture, right? That's uh, Jonathan Groff. Um, A lot of you will know who he is. If you don't, he's... uh, King George III, you'll be back, right? He's, uh, or, or Christoph, if you're younger, Christoph from, uh, from Frozen. I, I, you know, cartoon characters and crazy kings aren't necessarily where I want to get my advice from either. Um, but the thing is, those are just a few, and those are kind of at the top of the search engine because they're all really popular people. You can go further and further down, and you find all different kinds of people who are saying basically the same site, the same thing. I even wound up on a, a website that said, don't follow your heart. I thought, oh, this will be interesting. And there are a whole bunch of quotes. All of them were still about follow your heart. There was only one that I could identify that actually said don't follow your heart. Everyone else, even on the site that said don't follow your heart, was still saying follow your heart. 
That is the culture we live in. You be you. Trust your gut. Follow your heart. That's the key that will unlock happiness and success in life. And it shapes our culture, it shapes our dreams we follow our hearts, shapes parenting, right? Parents, please, please do not raise your children to follow their hearts because their hearts aren't, God gave them to you to shape, not to say, hey, let me just keep you alive until you figure life out. I'm actually, shape them according to who God made them to be, not a cookie cutter of what you want. Be sensitive, but shape them. Right? Follow your heart in relationship is why we have so many train wrecks. I certainly don't want to be a heartless relationship. Romance and friendship, all those things matter, but if that's where it stops, that's really not going to work. My identity is not tied to what my heart says. All the different things that we have in our culture that say follow your heart, it seems so nice And yet, that's the culture that's created the culture we're living in that is a mess. What does God say? I think we would be better, don't follow your heart, lead it. Lead your heart and follow Jesus. God's really not into the follow your heart kind of mindset, right? There's a whole book in the Bible devoted to that. Did you ever think of it that way? Solomon followed his heart. What was the conclusion of that book? It's like chasing the wind. Genesis 6, it says, all of humanity was destroyed by God except for a very few people because he looked at people and said, look at that, the thoughts and intentions of their hearts are only evil continually. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above everything else and desperately sick. Jesus said, it's out of our hearts that we're corrupted. Because from our hearts come all sorts of evil thoughts. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, lies, slander. Just going with how I feel or what I think is never good advice if that's the only advice. And Paul's really straight up. He says, take your thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. Don't follow your heart. Lead it. Follow Jesus. If you have a Bible, would you open to Matthew chapter four? I wanna look at what it looks like, if you will, to follow Jesus and lead our hearts and the path that he's got for us, which, by the way, whenever we talk about any action that we take in Christ, always the primary emphasis is on him, right? I can't lead my heart effectively either unless he's going to empower that and shape that unless he takes the primary leadership. But I partner in that, right? So I gotta learn not to follow my heart. And I'm afraid that it's easy for us to fall into patterns because this is the culture we live in, this is the air that we breathe, this is the water that we swim in. And even when we try to follow Jesus, it's easy for us to subtly fall into patterns, even in our discipleship where we're really not following him, we're following our hearts and it's leading in the wrong way. 
And I want to look at that a little bit this morning. We're in a, a second week of a three-week series on discipleship. Last week, we defined discipleship for us in very simple terms. You can complexify it. You can embellish it. You can elaborate on it. And that all has good effect and good purpose. But it's absolutely essential that we keep it to the central truth so we don't get lost. And the central truth is this. Discipleship is I become like Jesus I help others become like Jesus. That's it. The rest is details, the rest is tools, the rest is helpful, but it boils down to this. And if that's not happening, then whatever I'm doing is not discipleship. And following my heart will never get there. It will never get me there. If I'm gonna follow Jesus and follow Jesus' heart, it's really good to ask, what is that? And that's why we're in Matthew chapter four. This is a really momentous occasion because um, the page of history just turned. You may not hear it, but if you're careful, you can. You can hear it in this passage. Something dramatic has just happened. In fact, Jesus has been out in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. He overcomes, and then in verse 12, it says, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. John the Baptist has been arrested. He's going to lose his life. He's not coming out of prison. John the Baptist is the last great prophet preparing the way for God's brand new thing, which comes in Jesus. That's the turn of the page of history. John's in prison, it's go time. Right, there's this total shift in Jesus' ministry. Jesus has not been hiding in a corner, he's known, he's heard, he's done things, he's taught things, but there's a shift that takes place at this point where it's like John is passing off the scene, it is go time. And then we're reminded in that passage that the the prophecy, the land of Naphtali and Zebulun has seen a great light and the Gentiles are gonna hear the gospel proclaimed. And then here's what it says, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then we'll skip down just a little bit because it kind of embellishes that or broadens that out, starting in verse 23. He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. Great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, from Jerusalem, Judea, from the beyond the Jordan. Okay, there's kind of our wrap up the initial launch into Jesus' ministry. And it says from that point, when history page turned, he began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the banner that goes over the top of his entire ministry. This is what Jesus' life is focused on. This is what his teaching is focused on. This is what makes him tick. This is what he's here to proclaim and to establish. This is what all his miracles tie into. And then that second section that we read just kind of expands on that and said, here's what it looks like. And he's going around saying, here's the gospel of the kingdom of God. That's Jesus' focus. If I am going to follow Jesus, if I'm going to become like Jesus, if I'm gonna help others become like Jesus, it's really important that I understand that focus so that it can be mine as well, because that's what he's about, right? And it's not just in Jesus' life. There were certain things that he did that were only his, But this is what is to continue. Let me read you one verse, the last verse in the book of Acts, right? 
The Gospels are part one, Acts is part two. In fact, Luke is literally part one and then Acts part two of a two volume work that says here's what Jesus is doing. Here's what he started and then after he went back to heaven, here's what he's continuing through his followers by the power of his spirit. And the book of Acts, which just kind of stops, and I think that's part of the point, it stops because the story is not written, we're still writing the story. Same reality, so the way the book of Acts ends is the same reality that we occupy, and here's the last words of the book of Acts. Paul is in prison, and he lived there two whole years at his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God, teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. My ability to become like Jesus and help others become like Jesus is completely wrapped up in this idea of the kingdom of God. I have to understand that and seek to live in that. I have to lead my heart that direction by God's power to really be the disciple I'm called to be. Last week we looked at, if you will, the why of being disciples, which is like, it's essential, it's, it's necessary, it's the one option, but it's well worth it. The payoff's amazing. Next week we'll look at how. What are some practical tools to say, here's a few things you can begin to do or strengthen in your life and maybe use in helping other people. This week we wanna look at what. What does this look like? What is Jesus' life about? And how does that translate to my life? And we can't do a comprehensive picture of that this morning because that would actually encompass all of this. But the idea of the kingdom actually works through all of this and it's what Jesus focuses on. So I want us to understand the good news in the way Jesus is using it. And then I also want to look at some of the ways that we may have subtly shifted the good news. Subtly shifted where subtly we've drifted into following our heart instead of leading it. And um, my prayer and hope is that that will be really a fruitful time for us. This good news, uh, the gospel, that's what it means, right? So if you look at verse 23 again, here's the phrase I actually want to have kind of banner head over everything we're going to think about this morning. He went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus proclaims the gospel, good news, of the kingdom. Boiled down, it's more complex than this, but the essence of that is God's rule. In other words, Jesus is saying, here's good news, God rules. God rules in a way that is distinctive in this moment, it is coming in a fresh way, and that's good news. And I'm inviting you into that reality and into helping me expand that reality. The kingdom shows up throughout scripture, right? It starts in the garden. And, and the kingdom has really, if you wanna boil it down, there's two key things that are always there that are central to it. One is relationship with God defines everything, and the other is mission of God shapes my life. The relationship with God, Adam and Eve are placed in the garden, they're in God's image, and the garden itself functions like a temple. It's where they meet with God regularly. They're supposed to be in this dynamic relationship with him. And then he gives them a mission, right? From that place of relationship, go out and make the world a better place. Go out and 
expand peace, shalom, goodness and wholesome and, 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 and truth and beauty and all of the things that we would rightfully understand as good, go do that, right? He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, rule it, subdue it, shape it, go be farmers and architects and accountants and dancers, go raise families, go do science, go do any human endeavor that is appropriately lined up from the place of relationship that makes this world even better, more beautiful, more wonderful, because that's how I'm glorified, that's how you're fulfilled, that's the picture. There's this relationship that anchors everything that is the absolute center, and then there's this partnership and this mission to say, and now here's what I'm doing because of that. That's what I made for. Right, it shows up again. That gets ruined in the garden, right? So even the nature of the mission has to shift a little bit. All of the things, goodness, truth, and beauty, they're still valuable, they're still important to pursue, but now relationships are broken, so we have to start there. So when God reaches into Egypt and rescues Israel and he takes him out in the wilderness and he starts giving him the plan, here's the picture, here's the rules, if you will. He gives a few of those and then he stops. And most of the second half of the book of Exodus is all about building the tabernacle. All kinds of details because you can't live this if I'm not with you. Relationship is at the center. There's gotta be a means for us to connect. Be with me, be like me. Then mission, help others be like me. We come to Jesus' day, Jesus is launching out, here's his ministry, and I skipped one little section, which is actually really central. Right after it says, here's what his ministry looks like, before it begins to expand on that, verse 18, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Follow me, I will make you fishers of men. Right? Here's the relationship, follow. Here's the mission, fish. Follow and fish, that's the package. We're gonna go show people what the kingdom of God is all about. We're gonna go start something that I'll complete when I return, but I want you to be a part of this now and until I return. And I want you to be a part of it in how you live and who you become and who I make you to become and what that life looks like. And I want you to be a part of it in spreading that in the world with me and on my behalf. Right after this section, then Jesus preaches what may be his most famous sermon, and it's a sermon about the kingdom. It's a sermon about exactly what he's talking about. It starts by saying, blessed to the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then it talks about all these different characteristics. This is a whole different kind of people. This is who, and they're not commands, by the way. The, the, the Beatitudes are statements. This is who my people actually are. This is who I will make you be. You lean into that, or you cooperate, right? You help lead your heart, but I'm taking the main load here. I will make you this. This is who I want you to be. And you will impact the world, salt and light. 
It's all because of what I'm doing. It will all be accomplished. None of it's gonna get left behind, but it even changes how we look at things like righteousness and religion. The end of chapter five is all about here's the righteousness that people thought and that's not nearly enough. You've gotta be like God. You've gotta be better than the scribes and the Pharisees because there's something that comes from within. It's transformation. Chapter six is a lot about religion. Here's how you think about engaging with God. That's not right. It's a heart issue and how people are fasting and how they're giving and how they're doing all these things. That's not the way to do it. In fact, their prayer life, don't listen to them. Some of them are praying to show off. Others of them think they can somehow manipulate God with just the right words. Here's how you pray. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Keep it simple because this is what it is to relate to God. And it's not just about righteousness and religion, the typical categories we think of relating to God. It's about all of life. Chapter six ends talking about things like, what am I gonna eat? What am I gonna wear? What about wealth? Who's watching out for me? Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. Chapter seven, different ways people are responding and engaging. And by the way, not everybody who looks like they got it together is actually part of my kingdom. Right, that's the Sermon on the Mount. It's, I'm telling you, there's something new, there's good news. The good news is this, God rules. God rules, here's what that looks like, here's what it's gonna look like in you, and here's what I want you to help bring about as you partner with me in that. Follow me and fish. Become like me. Help others become like me. Centered in relationship, expressed in mission. Don't follow your heart. It will never lead you there. Follow Jesus. Lead your heart with this in mind. As we talk about, consider, how do I really live as a disciple of Jesus? All kinds of things come into play all the time. We have to keep coming back to the central heart of it. Am I becoming like him? Am I helping others become like him? What's my picture of what that means? Am I living a life as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven where God is the one who's actually ruling? And not just my Sundays, not just my righteousness considerations or my religious issues, but all of life. What I'm eating and what I'm wearing and about my wealth and about all of that stuff. It's all wrapped up together because it's all his concern. And this relationship redefines everything about me and then this mission that he has me on takes me out into the most fruitful life that I can live. And that's much bigger than just how'd you do your Sunday, how was your quiet time today, what's the last thing you read, what's your prayer life like? Those things matter, but the picture's much bigger. It's much more all-encompassing. And as Jesus unpacks just a few of the details There's a couple of, actually there's three things that I meditated on this week that I think, here's easy trip points. Trip points that I see in myself and in others. So I wanna call those out and say, is it really good news? When I think about God's rule in my life, is that really good news, right? I'm an American. We have this very egalitarian kind of mindset. I don't like the word rule. That's why King George and Hamilton is the fool, right? Right? I don't like to be ruled. Well, that's just naive, right? Follow your heart. 
doesn't work. I'm, I'm in a planet with billions of people who are following their heart. Structure happens, right? There's structures in families, there's structures in friend groups, there's structures in neighborhoods, there's structures in countries and cities and counties and churches and businesses. There are all kinds of structures where there's influence, where there's authority, where there's power, where there's rule. There is no way around that. I cannot live as this completely libertarian, free being who does whatever I want, and if I were able to, I would ruin everything anyway. I live under rule. Jesus says the good news is, God's ready to take the place. God, that's where he was, that's who he is, and he's willing to close that distance and restore. That's good news. The kingdom of God is good news. Your life can be shaped by his rule. That's good news, because it's gonna be shaped by some sort of rule. Don't follow your heart or anyone else's. That's gonna lead you to death. Follow God's. That's the good news I'm bringing you. Now, I, I, as I process this, I, I saw three key trip points that I've wrestled with. When I think about it's the kingdom of God is good news, um, one thing that's easy to trip on is um, I forget, and I think a lot of people do, it's about transformation, not affirmation. It's about transformation, not affirmation. I don't get to come in as I am and stay as I am. I'm loved as I am, but I'm made to be as I ought. And it's easy to say, well, the really good news is how I'd just be accepted. That would be terrible news. I'm probably longing to be accepted because my life is out of joint and hurting in a mess already. Please don't accept me that way. Don't make me try to figure it out and solve my own problems before you love me. That's cruel. But it's also cruel to say it's all fine and good when I know it's not, and so do you. And yet, especially in a culture that keeps talking about you be you, follow your heart, it, it just leads us back there so easily. I wanna be affirmed. I wanna be affirmed. I don't need to be affirmed. I need to be transformed. I need to be accepted loved, but don't leave me where I am. It's good news, the kingdom says there's a different way, there's a different pattern, it's not optional, it's dictated by a king, I won't affirm you, but I will transform you, I will accept you, and I will transform you. Look in this sermon that Jesus preaches and see a couple of things that I think help us, just really make sure we're, we're keying into that. First in chapter seven, right near the end, Verse 13, it says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. The gate is narrow, the way is hard that leads to life. Those who find it are few. Now back up from all the years of religious interaction with that and just think about that. What he's saying is there's a natural flow to the world. Every single one of us are part of that natural flow. We may pick a lane. You may be more liberal or you may be more conservative. You may be more, uh, you know, granola and kale or you may be more meat and potatoes. You may be more uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers or, or Los Angeles Rams. There's different choices we make, but the essential values and directions are the same. We all follow our hearts and we all go more or less the same bankrupt direction. Jesus is saying that's the flow. You can't go there. I'm not going to affirm that. 
the wide path is death. There's a narrow gate and the path is harder, right? Right off the bat, he's not affirming us. He's saying that's wrong, don't do that. Or chapter five. Chapter five, probably the best known section. It's the Beatitudes that describe the characteristics of God's people, most of which are either character traits or radically different lifestyle that flows out of a deep character trait, poor in spirit, meek, merciful, peacemaker, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Those are the kinds of things that he's keying into. And then there's, there's actually eight Beatitudes, and the first seven all deal with that, and then number eight seems to take this hard right turn. You go, wait, what? And that comes in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Count yourself blessed. It's a good thing when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. That means you're actually a, a citizen of the kingdom. You're one of mine. Well, it doesn't sound too blessed, does it? I don't like persecution. There's a pushback, right? There's a pushback because there's some departure that's happened between the world and following Jesus. I don't need to be affirmed, I need to be transformed. That's what the Beatitudes are. And that transformation creates friction, right? And there's a pushback that comes. He expands on that, blessed are you, now he makes it personal. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then verse 13, You're the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Right, there's this distinction of character. I'm not gonna affirm who you are or the dreams that you've had. I'm gonna accept you, love you, but I'm going to transform you, make you different, which creates this rupture. And initially, people around you are gonna go, this is nuts, you've lost your mind. And they'll push back. Because not only doesn't it affirm you, it doesn't affirm them either, and they want affirmation too. But he says, as this transformation takes place, there's an impact, right? The pushback gives way to preservation. Right, your salt. Remember, for them, salt was primarily the way you kept stuff from rotting. They would enjoy the flavor that it brought, just as you and I do. So that's certainly part of the image. But the main function was to keep stuff from rotting. It says you become a different kind of people, you live in this world, and you will slow its rot. But you don't do that by being affirmed for being just like everyone else. You do that by being transformed. And then it goes on, the next section, right? It says, um, you are the light of the world, verse 14. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. So there's pushback as, as this goes on, then there's a preservation that happens, and then there's praise, right? Not only is, is it slowing the rot, but over time, people say, wait a minute, this difference actually, there's something good about this. There's something that is a blessing to me. 
right? I can see what you are and what you're doing. These are the pagans. I can see what you are, what you're doing, and that's good, and that blesses me, and I wanna praise God because of that. I can feel your love even when you disagree with me. I can see how this is a better path even though I'm not sure how to get on it, and I'm kinda struggling with it. There's this impact, but it, it comes from, I'm not gonna affirm you, I'm gonna transform you. It's a kingdom. It, it's, it's not a pastime, it's not a, a self-improvement project. I'm the king, I invite you in, and I change you from the core out. And the tripping point, even for those of us that are followers who take it pretty seriously, is it's easy to lose sight of that. It's easy to adopt a God-affirm-me kind of way. The more obvious at the personal level, we're looking for kind of that grandpa God, right? The grandpa God who is always kind and gentle and always smiles at us and goes, oh, you're so cute. And even if he disagrees with us, it's like, well, you rascal, you. It's all gonna be fine. Uh, That still sometimes happens. But often it gets embedded in more subtle ways. Not God is with me, but God is with my agenda kind of mindset. There's certain things that I think are important, and some of them are. But because I'm not really understanding how important transformation is, and because I'm craving affirmation, I lose my footing, and I start to get on board with an agenda that's not fully God's, and I just assume he's on there with me. I'll give you two examples, opposite ends of the spectrum, but this will be, I hope, helpful so you can see how it works. One is the dynamic of post-evangelicalism, right? Many of you are familiar with that. There's this whole abandoning of the historic Christian faith and the truth of the word of God and the authority of God because I'm uncomfortable. God can't possibly think the things that he seems to think. He can't possibly say the things that it says he says because that puts me at odds with people. And that's not nice. I, see, I want to be affirmed. I want to fit in. I want everyone else to feel good. And instead of saying, I don't want you to feel good in this brokenness. I want to love you in this brokenness. I want you to feel good as somebody who's embraced. But I want you to know this brokenness leads to death. And I don't want to affirm you. I want to see you transformed. And when I lose sight of that, it's so easy to get pulled into things. And things that matter. Right? Why is this such a strong movement? Because there's genuine and appropriate concern that people be treated with respect and love and care and dignity. That's good and right and true. That's what Jesus would do. But he wouldn't compromise truth to get there. He's not looking to be affirmed. He's not looking to feel good or help other people feel good. He's looking to make us good. It's about transformation, not affirmation. And so many people seem to lose their footing. The other end of the spectrum, we get worked up about things, things that we rightfully should get worked up about. Things in our economy, things in our culture, things in our politics. Then we go, this is crazy. And we should speak up and do things at times. That's all good and right, but somewhere along the way, we lose sight. And then we have adopted an agenda, and we're thinking God's on board with our agenda when he got off the bus three stops ago. And it's like, God's with my agenda. No, he's not. There's a great verse in Joshua that I find super helpful. Joshua, who is the man of God, one of the greatest in all of the scripture, who's leading them at their great moment into battle to conquer the promised land. And he's outside the walls of Jericho looking, trying to figure out 
what God would want him to do when God himself shows up incognito and Joshua starts to pull his sword and he says, okay, whose side are you on? I love that passage because it sets everything in perspective. This is the angel of the Lord. God himself has taken human form. He's standing before Joshua, who is his man, who he is totally on board with, and yet his answer is, nobody's. I am the captain of the armies of God. End of answer. Doesn't go on and explain things. Doesn't go on and say, well, I know you mean well, but you know, yeah, and yeah, the people of the land are messed up. He's like, I'm not on anybody's side. I'm God. The question is, whose side are you on? Right? This affirmation, transformation kind of struggle point can fall down right there. I can somehow get excited about what I feel or what I think or what the people around me feel or think, and I've got to fit in with that, and somehow I'm going to bring God on board to my team. And God's saying, <laughs> Who do you think you are? I am not on your team. That is not even a coherent concept. I am God. End of answer. Now let's come back around to lesson number one. I'm not here to affirm you. I'm here to transform you. The things that you're worked up about, I might be worked up about too. But I will not join your team. I will not say you're good when you're not. I will not further your agenda, it is the kingdom of God, and I'm the king. And that's good news. Second trip point that I think is easy. I know I trip on it and have historically at different times. When Jesus says he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, he's saying, good news, God rules. It's about God's rule, not God's rules. Here's an easy trip point. We get, we get hung up on the wrong things. Remember, it always centers in a dynamic relationship. That's always the center, always, always. Did I say always enough? Because I need to always say that if I'm even gonna approach how important it is. It is always centered in relationship. And I need to ask myself a question, am I more engaged with my Lord or with my list? Am I more interested in the teacher or the teaching? And a lot of things that I get focused on are important, but they get in the way when I don't remember. It's about connecting with the king. It is his rule that encompasses everything. And when I break it down to rules, which tends to either be behaviors or beliefs, two things typically happen. One, I became the be, become the behavior or belief police. And two, I become the behavior or belief performer. You guys are messed up because you don't understand. You guys are messed up because you're doing this. You guys are messed up because you're not doing this, but I am. And along the way, it's no longer about relating to God at all. There's this list. Right, and that can be moralism. Here's all the different rules. Morality matters a lot. Holiness has practical implications. Don't do that, do do this is appropriate. But it, it goes far beyond that. It's not the rules of God, it's the rule of God. This outworking of a relationship in my life. It can be activism, right? We gotta be about this, we gotta be about that. I've, I've been guilty of that, right? 
and things that we've got to be about. Here's one that has been a passion of mine that I know I've crossed the line at times. But I would say this without apology. If you can go week after week, month after month, year after year, without ever seeking to share Christ with anyone, you are in sin. It is not okay not to be missional. However, making that the litmus test or the thing that most matters instead of Jesus, that's sin too. It's not about the rules. It's about the rule of God in my life. Some people, and I've fallen into this one too, beliefs, certain theology, this is the right way to say that, the right way to understand that, the right way to teach that. There are beliefs that are worth going to the mat for, but there are a whole lot that aren't. And we start getting doctrinaire and dogmatic, and we start leaving God behind. We're not engaging with the teacher, we're engaging with some sort of teaching. You see that, have you ever experienced any of those? Those are all subtle ways that I start, this makes sense to me, I'm following my heart. I'm not leading it. There's a third one, last one. Some of us, I think our favorite verse is 2 Corinthians 1.3, as we would paraphrase it. We're gonna go into 2 Corinthians next. Plug, stick around. That's our next big series. 2 Corinthians 1.3, the way we wanna read it is we are engaged with the God of always comfort. The God of always comfort. It's just nice. It's always comfort. All right, 2 Corinthians 1 is about being smashed. <laughs> and in the process of being smashed, in the experience of being smashed, God is the God of all comfort who comforts me in that. It doesn't say he's the God of always comfort. Where was he when I was getting smashed? Well, he was there with me, letting me be smashed. Sometimes he's even the one doing that with the pestle. Like, oh, it's not always comfort, right? Here's the deal. It's the gospel of the kingdom. It's the good news of God's rule. It's a kingdom, not a candy store. So easy to say, here's what I can get, here's what I can get, here's what I can get. Those things matter. Read the Sermon on the Mount. I care, you know, I know what you need before you ask. Seek first the kingdom and my righteousness and all these things will be added to you. But understand that context too, right? Because the next verse says, by the way, there's enough trouble in every day to just take care of itself. So it's not going to be easy. Right? The, the, the Lord's Prayer doesn't say, give us today all of the great wealth that we so clearly deserve. Like, meet our needs. He's abundant, he's generous, he more than meets our needs so often. But it's not a candy store, it's a kingdom. And I find in my life, this is the new battleground. Right? Comfort. The longer I live, the more that becomes important. It's like, wow, I never knew it was that important to me. Like, wow, it's hard. There was a season where I was going through some horribly difficult things, and a guy that I was mentoring who was always checking in with me said, how are you doing? Multiple times he did this, and multiple times I gave him the same answer, and it wasn't glib, and it wasn't oorah, and it wasn't false it was real, it was what I believed and where I was. I said, you know, God could grind me to powder 
And the only response I'd be justified in making was to say thank you. You know, that's still my theology. Still don't have any doubt about that statement. And I think I would still stand there. I still try to. Oh, it's a lot harder than it used to be. It is so much easier to go, oh, I just want to be a little more comfortable here, God. Someone told me the other day, and I really appreciated this, John Piper, who's way out there on the go be tough for Jesus kind of spectrum in his older years is saying, I'm finding that the, the whole thing of comfort is something that I have to continually wrestle with with God. Right? It's a kingdom. It's not a candy store. God is not here to make my life pretty and adorn it with all the nice things that I think, right? He's not going to facilitate me following my heart because that is bankrupt. He says, come be with me and together we will lead your heart, which is better than you can ever imagine. Remember, coming back to the kingdom, two defining things is about the presence of God, that relationship, and about the mission. It is a relationship that is empowering and transforming. That's cool. What else can I say that about? My relationship with Jesus is empowering and transforming. I need to lean into that. And the mission is bigger than my life and better than my dreams. It is bigger than my life and better than my dreams and the best me that I can be is there. And it's not just in terms of what we think of as righteousness and religious things because the Sermon on the Mount deals with those and it deals with other things too. Remember the Beatitudes? Blessed are those who are peacemakers. Right, that's not simply reconciling one person who's at odds with another. It, It clearly centers there. But peace in scripture is a much bigger thing. Blessed are those who bring shalom into the world. Remember how it says, blessed are the merciful? Merciful people are those, understand it biblically, mercy is being moved by what I see to do something good, right? That's what I'm talking about. I'm calling you not to just live a life that has got these religious contours to it and has certain moral behavior. It's unleashed in the whole world. I care about what you're eating and what you're wearing and what your day is gonna look like, but there's a central axis that says, I'm the ruler, follow me and fish, help other people follow me. And we'll fill in the details, and all of that's worthwhile, but the central axis has gotta be this vibrant, defining relationship with me, partnering with me in the world. That's gotta rewrite everything. That's what a disciple looks like. In short, following Jesus is following in that. How am I doing? How are you doing? Maybe God's highlighted some things like, I think you're a little off here. Stop doing this, start doing that, refocus here. Remember, don't get hung up on the list. But there are things to do, concrete, specific things sometimes. Just make sure it's about the rule of God, not the rules, right? Maybe it doesn't feel so good. Don't get hung up on affirmation. He loves you enough to die for you. He accepts you as you are, but he won't leave you there. It's about transformation. Following your heart, it's corrupt. So is mine. He makes that really clear. And Giselle and Steve and Oprah and everyone else in the world and all that they say may make sense from a certain framework and from a godly one. It falls down pretty quickly. And we all know that. 
He's saying, scrap that. The good news is God's rule in your life. Embrace that. Together, let's lead your heart where it's supposed to go. Be with me. Help others be with me. Be like me. Help others be like me. Follow. Fish. Be transformed. And watch what I can do with that. I'd like to ask the ushers to come take our offering. Lord, um, we are grateful for your grace in our lives. We pray that you would hallow your name and that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask you to meet our daily need, Lord. We know that you're abundant and you will go far above and beyond that, but we ask you to meet what we need right now. Please forgive us and help us to be those who do forgive, Lord. May we be legit in coming to you and not self-deceived and forgive us. Lead us in righteousness, not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one, Lord. May we be those who, with our lives, because of your grace, shine out on a hill, preserve the rot from happening, and just delight in you and lead others to do the same. Take these gifts, Lord, I pray. Use them for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.